Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Bussman. And last week, I tweeted out a photo of a conversation I had on stage at Chicago Ideas Week with Dan Pink, best-selling author of the book, When. I was startled when I looked at that photo and saw how relaxed I appeared on stage, completely at home. I had to ask myself, why wasn't I speaking and moderating years ago? How could I not even have considered it? I have no idea. So once again, I have to thank Tim Ferriss for nudging me to start this podcast, and also Alex Benayan, author of the best-selling book, The Third Door, for pointing me towards speaking. If I hadn't met either of them, I still wouldn't know where I'm supposed to be. This point was hammered home again when I watched a video of my conversation with Frank Blake at the 212 conference in Vail, Colorado. Our talk and the reaction of the crowd seemed so natural to me. So I've got to thank the brothers Bornstein, Adam and Jordan, for inviting me to 212. You'll hear Adam introduce Frank and I at the beginning of this week's episode. Frank is an American original. Very few people have had the life experience he's had over such a wide landscape that arches across the heights of education, law, politics, and business. Frank is probably best known for growing Home Depot as its CEO between 2007 and 2014, but as you'll hear, his adventures range from Harvard to Columbia Law School to serving George H.W. Bush when Bush was vice president, to working for Jack Welch at General Electric. Now, Frank serves on the board of directors for many companies, and he even has a wonderful podcast. It's called Crazy Good Turns. You can listen to it at crazygoodturns.org. Frank has seen the world as few others have, so it was mind-blowing to hear his take on a subject dear to my heart, questions. For decades, I've been making a living by asking questions and never even imagined his vantage point. This conversation literally made me see the world in a whole new way. I'm deeply grateful for Frank's wisdom, and you will be too. This is one rare man. So I'm gonna go straight to a recording of a conversation that took place earlier this year at 8,000 feet above sea level. It starts with an introduction from 212 founder, Adam Bornstein. Take it from here, Adam. I basically wanted to take one of the best storytellers and interviewers I've ever seen in Cal and pair him with one of the smartest people I've ever sat in a room with Frank and just let them talk and let it go from there. So I'm not gonna say any more, and I will let them take it from here. All right, a little introduction here. We got a man born in Massachusetts, went to Harvard, Columbia Law. After that, he clerked for Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. Worked for the Environmental Protection Agency and with Jack Welch at General Electric. Oh, also counsel uh, for 
Vice President George Bush, also later on Department of Energy, CEO of Home Depot, and now Chairman of the Board of Delta, and a lot of other boards. Now, that really doesn't do you justice. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. You know, there's, and I was explaining this before, there are people who go out and they watch exotic birds and they'll be in the bush for like six months with their binoculars and then all of a sudden this one rare bird will pop up and they'll jump up, there it is! That's what tonight is like for me. <laughs> So let's stop right there. <laughs> That's good. You are looking at an at a rare specimen in terms of asking questions. And I'm going to trace this evolution because there are just there's nobody out there that I can think of who has had to ask questions in as they're evolving through all these different stages. So let's take it back to childhood. You're in Massachusetts. You're in your elementary school. Now there was a guy who won the Nobel Prize who was asked if his parents treated him differently than any of the other kids. Uh, what made him win a Nobel Prize? And he said, well, you know, there was a difference. Other kids would come home from school and their parents would ask them, what'd you learn in school today? And they'd say, nothing. I came home and my mom asked me, what good questions did you ask in school today? And my question to you is, were you a good question asker when you were in elementary school? All right, so first, <laughs> before, I, before I answer that question here, I want to give a preface. Uh, so Cal and I talked by phone a couple of weeks ago, and he said, well, what do you think we should have as a topic? And he said, how about asking questions? And for reasons that I hope I get to describe to you later, I thought, that's brilliant, because I believe in the power of asking questions. And so I go, this is great. That's a great topic. Then, and I knew, I knew roughly who he was, but not in depth, but then I'm preparing and start listening to his podcasts and going on YouTube and watching him. And this man is like serious PhD on questions. So it was seriously uh, unfair to put questions as the topic. But I would also tell you, as someone who, who spent a lot of time doing that, that uh, Cal has abstracted and explained things that it took me just a shitload of time to understand. So now, on the did I ask questions as a child? No, uh, I didn't. I was terrified and would never have thought to ask anybody any question. When you, no. So no, you, like I didn't you would ask sit questions. in the back of the, one of those kids in the back of the classroom and not raise I your hide. Hand. I would just, just terrified anybody would ever call on me, just stay out of people's way. I'm the fourth of five, it'll pass over. No, thank <laughs> it's okay. Does I, birth order have an effect on the way you ask questions? Or do the older siblings just say, knock it off, kid? Knock it off, kid. 
Knock it off, That's, kid. Yeah, you're not there to ask questions. <laughs> you're, you're there to execute. <laughs> that's, that's, that's your job is fortify. The dishes need to be cleared. Frank, <laughs> why don't you clear the dishes? That's kind of more the way. It, that question on do the dishes need to be cleared would not be in my mouth. Yeah. Okay, what happens when you get to Harvard? First day in Harvard, you were going into class. So uh, none of you is as old as I am. Uh, but my experience in college was kind of unique. Uh, and it was, so my class at Harvard, and I'm not making this up, this isn't uh, apocryphal, the, the president of the university called us the worst class in Harvard <laughs> history. And to explain that, the f my freshman year, you go in and you wear coats and ties, you had parietals. Uh, if you had someone from the opposite sex in your room, uh, three feet had to be on the floor at all times and the door <laughs> opened. I, this, this was freshman year. Sophomore year, uh, the university building was occupied. Uh, the university fell apart. It fell apart. Classes were optional, exams were optional. Uh, you know, there was a lot of other activity going on. Uh, it wasn't necessary to ask a question. It was not a deeply rigorous intellectual exercise. But I'm, I'm sorry to say that. So I avoided asking questions in college too. But then you get to law school. <laughs> okay. Now law school. questions are going to change because they're going to teach you how to ask questions. Yeah. So. I, <laughs> so. So. So I have a, how many other, so before I offend too many other lawyers in the audience, how many lawyers do we have in the audience? All right, so not that many. So my explanation of law school is like, law school is three years of training to get reasonably intelligent minds fascinated by shit no other human being would be interested in. <laughs> That's the purpose of law school. So they do teach you you know, how to ask questions, how to be irritating and asking questions and just keep asking questions. But it's more uh, aggressive than your thought process on questions. The questions are not there to establish a human connection. The thought process is I'm gonna ask a series of questions that's just, you're gonna wanna pay me to leave the room. That's, that's my professional goal. So it, it's sort of like narrowing down a hallway on yeah. a person. Yeah, yeah. And now is that helpful in any way as your career is gonna move on? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so in fact, no, no. So now I'm gonna get to the relevant part of this. Uh, so put aside the part of being a lawyer and politics, and politics has nothing to do with asking questions either. Questions are statements in politics, so right, you don't ask questions. You, or your questions are just a, a friendly way of making a statement, or an unfriendly way of making a statement. Well, how does that work? You, have you ever listened to a politician? The po I mean, it is series of how did you, you know, when did you stop beating your wife questions. One of my, one of my, one of my favorite learnings on this is, and I should have known it beforehand, so as Cal mentioned, I uh, was the Deputy Secretary of Energy for a brief period of time, lasted less than a year. It was a dismal, horrible experience. 
But when I was going through the confirmation process, you go and you meet all the different senators. And I go and meet with this senator, and the happened to be from the other party. And the Department of Energy, my God, this is boring, but the Department of Energy runs the hydroelectric facilities in the Northwest, if you don't know. Bonneville Power is actually reports to the Department of Energy. This was very important to this senator. And he said, I understand that you believe blank about the Bonneville Power. And I said, yes, sir, I do. And he said, oh, that's great. That's very thoughtful. If I ask you that question, will you get the same response in your hearing? And I said, absolutely, yes, Senator, that's what I think. So along comes my hearing, he asks the question, I give the answer. As I leave the hearing without knowing anything, there is already a press release that he's issued expressing his undying opposition to my nomination because of my answer to this question, because it was so against the interests of his constituents. So that was, that's more the kind of question you get in politics than the genuine, I want to understand where you are. So at this point in your life, you have a distrust of questions? <laughs> <laughs> questions are not a relevant way of connecting with people. Right. So yeah, that's, it's, it's not a tool. Questions are not a useful tool, what, other than as a, a tool, an offensive tool. They're, they can back people up. Uh, as I say, you can win cases with them, but they're not a, they're not a connecting tool. And you're serving as counsel for George Herbert Walker Bush. Do questions come up there that don't come up for anyone else in this room? For He's sure. the vice president at the time. For sure. I've, I mean, I won't, I mean, I lots of different political stories. I was, I was actually uh, his counsel, uh, deputy counsel actually, when, the, when President Reagan was shot. And so you're racing around trying to understand what to do in that, so you, that's lots of questions and you're getting asked a lot of questions. Um, yeah, so question, you, those are different kinds of questions. Yeah. Do, do questions start to change in a more positive way for you when you leave government and move to General Electric? Yes and no. Uh, in business, I'd say questions have a different purpose. In business, they tend to be more connecting, but certainly in the GE culture, any of you here work at GE at any point in your careers? Okay, so you know, the questions aren't friendly. Questions are something to manage. So you've got a question that's an incoming and you try to handle it as best you can to show your knowledge and your familiarity. They're tests. Every question is a test. So up until this point in your life, did you not like questions? I wouldn't have, no. It would be great if, so, so, my, so my description, it's interesting because I didn't think this was going to be the path. I thought we were going to be talking the more positive side of questions. But uh, we're, we're going uh, right. to get there. All right. So, so, so the way I describe this is uh, when I was working for Welch uh, and he would call, I would never take the call sitting down. I would stand up. I could not imagine the state of relaxation 
to converse with him sitting down. Just wouldn't happen. It was, I am honed in on what this question is, and I am going to get the right answer to this question. There's a right answer, wrong answer, I'm going to give the right answer. So, no, if you, didn't, if you had a day without questions, life was good. That was, that was my view. This is getting even more amazing. Yeah. Because you're going to evolve to a place where you're using questions in a positive way. Where does that evolution start? So it was a shock. It was a rapid start, very brief in terms of my background. Cal expressed the background effectively, didn't cover. Uh, so I was at Home Depot for five years doing M&A for Home Depot. I get a call from the board in, it was literally December 31st, 2006, saying we're gonna fire the guy who's the CEO, we want you to be the CEO of Home Depot. I hadn't run the retail business, I really didn't know much about the retail business, I had done, I had bought and sold companies. I said, you need to think about this for a day, this isn't the right choice, you need to find somebody who's a retailer, I need to think about it for a day. Obviously, they called back and said, nope, you're still the person. And I said, okay. So I am stepping into a job running a company with 350,000 people having never, I mean, I'd run, you know, mergers and acquisition teams, but having never really run a team before, having never run a company before of any size, never mind, you know, 350,000 associates and at the time, $80 billion in revenue. That was a, you better damn well start asking questions <laughs> and you better find some people with answers really quick. Or, and in fact, just to put the punctuation to it, the guy who hired me at GE, who's a wonderful guy, the guy's name is Ray, um, Larry Bossidy, and he ran a number of companies and he was a best friend of, the lead director of Home Depot, and he called him when they announced that I was going to be the CEO, and he said, I bet you $10,000 he doesn't make it to the end of the year. So there weren't a lot of people going, oh, yeah, of course, you know, <laughs> this is the guy, you know, what we need is a lawyer from GE running a hardware company. That was not the immediate reaction. So what was it that turned questions into a, a positive form? Was there like a light switch moment where you just flipped a switch and questions changed for you? Uh, so, so it started with a panic. So, uh, <laughs> so, so you can imagine, you know, we had an internal TV that, you know, if you know retail in the break room, they have these TVs and got to go talk to 350,000 associates. So it just starts right there. What the hell do I say? What do they want to hear? Uh, what do I talk about? And uh, the rest of my eight years as CEO of Home Depot, I spent a lot of time asking questions and I have a whole philosophy around this that wasn't nearly as well formed until I listened to your podcasts and, and videos. But I believe for every single one of you with any sort of leadership business responsibility, thinking about how you ask questions and thinking about how you connect to the people who work with you through your questions is one of the most important things you can do. And I'm kind of a great witness to that 
because I didn't know shit. And yet, the company that I was running, so I'll do a brief brag on Home Depot. Uh, we start, when I started, it was a $50 billion market cap company. We bought back $50 billion of stock, and when I left, it was a $150 billion market cap company. It's now almost $250 billion market cap. So it actually works. I mean, there are other things as well, but it actually works. One of the things that I, I know you did from listening to the podcast you're on with Tim Ferriss is you're able to sit down with Jack Welch and ask him for some guidance. Right. What was that like? So first off, yes. So the, um, I sat down with a lot of people, but I called Jack and I said, um, you know, I need, I need your help. I need your assistance. Would you spend a day with me? He said, absolutely. Uh, this is another really interesting thing that I didn't believe and everybody says it and then you see it and you go, oh, okay. So I worked for him and I must have done 300 pitches for him. And I can't tell you the stress of every single pitch. And so I'm gonna fly down, it's the first month on the, first, second month on the job, I'm gonna fly down and spend a day with him. I so prepared for that meeting. I can tell you, I knew the margin rate of a spray nozzle. I was just <laughs> into every detail. Any question he could ask, I would have it covered sat down and we spent the entire day talking about my organization and people. And everybody says, you know, people are your most important asset. That's the most important thing you do as a leader. I, it hadn't been obvious to me from what I saw with Jack, but then listening to how he talked about people, the questions he asked, and he asked just brilliant questions. And again, to all of you, as you think about your businesses and what you're doing, I really recommend finding someone who can ask questions to you where if they say that's bullshit, it pulls you up short. So someone who knows you well enough to know that that's a nonsense answer. That's really helpful. Should and they, that was really helpful to me. He we went through it and, you know, there were excuses I was making, there were things I was saying, <laughs> made absolutely no sense. And he was going, this makes no sense. Did you hear yourself? So it's really helpful. Should there be a CQO, a chief questioning officer in an organization? <laughs> yes, and that person should be the leader. So my, uh, my answer to that is, if anything's really important, the leader in the organization needs to do it, not hand it over to someone else. And we were talking at dinner, there's a great phrase, uh, you're probably all familiar with it in business, that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. One of the ways you express how you care is how you ask questions, whether you ask questions, whether your questions are sincere and genuine, or they're just superficial, I'm asking you the question because you're here and I'm bored. So it's, it's, that's what the leader does. The leader asks engaged questions that shows that he cares about people. Can you tell when you just starting as, as a CEO that people don't want to give you honest answers because they want to protect themselves? So there's a great, the founder of Home Depot is, Home Depot has a number of, three founders, but one of the founders is a guy named Bernie Marcus. He's, he's great, one of the great retail geniuses of all times. 
his first comment to me was, here's what's going to happen. You're going to sit down at a table, all your teams around you, and you're going to tell a joke. They're all going to laugh. You're not funny. <laughs> Now, <laughs> close that circle. And what that means is everybody is going to feed back to you what they think you want to hear. And this was a really early lesson that's so true. So, you know, in retail, you walk stores a lot and you ask people, how are things going in the store? If you ask, if I go into a Home Depot store and I ask the store manager, how's everything going? There is only one answer to that question, and you know why. The only answer to that question is, everything's great, you're awesome, please go. That is <laughs> not an engaging question. That is not a question that shows you really care. That's just a throwaway question. And people sense a throwaway question. People sense whether there's, you're actually trying to extract something from their brain. But yes. But, but here, here's the thing. When, when I ask a question, I often don't expect to get the answer that I'm looking for until the fourth or fifth follow-up question. Does the CEO have time to get to the fourth or fifth follow-up question? So here was my, and everybody, I recommend that you all develop your own question hack. I'll give you mine. So here is mine, and it worked really well. Uh, my, because why is powerful, my question would always be, whatever the hell we were working on, whatever project thing, whatever it was, I would ask, why is blank not going well? Why isn't it going well? Every once in a while, someone would say, why do you say that? It's going awesome. Rare. Most often they'd go, oh my God, he knows it's not going well. I guess we better tell him why it's not going well. You actually have, because you've asked why, that is actually trying to penetrate, you actually skip all of those questions where they tell you how brilliant you are and you get to actually what's not going well. And it works very well. Why isn't this working? Just it, tell me, why isn't it working? And the beauty is why cannot be answered in one word. Right, right. Why cannot be answered with you're great, which is, which is how, <laughs> look, that's the training. Everybody, I mean, think about how your, your people are all trained to tell you you're great. That's what they think you want. They, want, they think you want to hear how great you are in one form or fashion. So that's a way of giving them license to say what's not going well. And it really works. There's, there's almost, it seems like there may be a culture of not asking questions that permeates a company because if I started a company and I don't understand something, do I want to ask a question and expose the fact that I don't understand. And so maybe I just hold it, hold it in. And maybe I just start saying everything is great when the boss is around. And when everybody's thinking like that, you're probably in trouble. So it's most companies, most companies do not have a culture of questioning. And they don't have a culture of questioning for two fundamental reasons. First, the leader doesn't want to ask a question because in, or some kinds of questions because he or she may be revealing that they don't understand something, that they're asking for help. 
More importantly, everybody around the table is going, ah, I don't want to be asking a question to my boss because that's not my job. My job is to answer questions. So I'll just wait and see what he or she asked me. And this is way more passive. And frankly, they're where I was. Hey, I, you know, every question's a test. I'm just soon not get tested. Just don't ask me and I'm fine. So having a questioning organization is actually difficult to develop. Having an organization where you're asking questions that show you care about the people is really hard to do. So yeah, it's, it's, but it's what I would say, because I spent eight years, it's a skill set that you can develop. So just like you can develop a skill set in terms of interviewing people and pulling them out, drawing them out, getting to their core, you can learn how you ask questions to people that reflect that you're actually, that you care about them, you care about their opinion, you want to hear where they disagree with you. It's really scary for most people to disagree with you, right? I mean, if they work for you, they're really scared. They're really scared about disagreeing with you. And myths come up. I mean, I, I would bet half of you are in organizations where there's some myth about some poor bastard who got fired, who asked a question, and they all go, well, we know what happens if you ask the Bosco question. Look, Joe and Jane aren't around anymore. That's to keep the head low. It's true, it's true, if you work in any kind of organization. So how did your philosophy evolve to get the most positive out of a question? So the first thing is I'm a deep believer in one-on-one -on -one time. I would spend, in, in my case, again, everybody does their own different things. I would spend every Saturday morning before the store would open, so from 5.30 to 8 o'clock in the morning, with a merchant in the store, going through his or her bays in the store, and just, hey, there's no place to run, there's no place to hide, there are no other people to defer to, I can ask questions, you can ask me questions, and so actually spending time, so there's a myth of micromanagement, in my opinion. So people get nervous about leaders who spend too much time micromanaging. It's not what you do, but you've got to show that you're willing to go to that level and that you want to engage. I think you honor people by asking them questions about what they do that show you care about what they do. I think you're honoring them by doing that. Could you just do that by showing it, or are you actually saying to them, you're free, I liberate you, you can ask whatever questions you want? Mm, I don't think I ever said that. <laughs> <laughs> that probably would have been a good thing to say, but I don't think I ever did. I, I mean, I hopefully I encouraged it, but I'm not sure I ever said it. So now it sounds like it's one-on-one -on -one or personal relationships that are yeah. enabling you to pull this off. And then, and we were talking about this at the table because I love this story. I'll ask you to tell it again. Uh, you came upon a great way to make connections with people who worked at the company uh, by having these dinners. Yeah. Uh, why don't you describe the dinners and then we'll actually back it up, explain how the dinners came to be. So I tried, it wasn't, it, I wasn't completely, con didn't do this every single week, but I tried as much as I could every week to have dinner, whether it was in Atlanta or wherever I was traveling, to have dinner with 12 to 14 hourly associates. 
So we'd go in, particularly after I'd been doing it for a while, it was at random in the stores in the area. We'd just pick 12 or 14 people and we'd have dinner. Uh, first, the background for it was I, I happened to have done this once and I'm sitting next to the first time, the first dinner, I wasn't thinking I was going to do this as a practice, but the first dinner, I'm sitting next to a woman about my age. Mind you, I've flown to wherever we were. I've flown there on the company plane and I'm staying at the Four Seasons or where I'm staying, but I'm staying in a really nice hotel. And she says, how's everything going? And I go, I start to whine about my back. My back's hurting, blah, 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 blah. And she very politely listens. And then I turn to her and I say, how's everything with you? And she said, well, it's funny you're talking about your back. My back's been hurting too. And I said, oh, really, what happened? And, oh, well, you know, I had this horrible fall in the store and I, you know, I fractured my spine and I've been in a wheelchair for the last six months. And, you know, moving lumber around in a wheelchair is really difficult. You've got a lot of heavy product. And I'm, I'm just shrinking in size as I'm listening to this. And I go, oh, God, that's horrible. That's horrible. And she says, well, that's not really what's bad. I said, really? What, what's worse than that? And she said, well, you know, at home I've got a 12-year-old son and he's developmentally disabled and I have to wash him every day and I get lifting him into the bathtub when I'm in a wheelchair. So I learned how unbelievably fortunate I am and that that was a great reminder. And so it was something I did every single week to understand who, because in my theory of the case, these are the people I'm working for. I'm working for these associates. I need to understand what's on their minds, what's in their lives. And so we do these dinners as, as often, you know, once a week, uh, as pretty much every week. And I would start every dinner it was, it was just, tell me your journey. What got you to Home Depot? And we'd just spend an evening talking about their lives and Depot and the relevance of Depot in their lives. And when anybody ever asked me, what do I miss about stepping down as CEO? It's the only thing I miss. It's, it was inspiring. People are amazing. There are people out there who have unbelievable things that they're overcoming in life. And just to see that is, was, uh, a unique and amazing privilege. What did you learn from those dinners? Uh, so the first thing I learned, retail is different than a lot of your businesses. We have a lot of folks who didn't graduate from high school or graduated from high school and that's about it. Very difficult circumstances. You know, very few people start a retail career thinking that's where they're gonna stay. It's an interesting passion that takes hold of you. What the number one thing I learned, we were talking about some of the things, but the number one thing I learned was just the amazing power of the American dream. And we're also in Canada and Mexico, so it's the same there, but just people's desire to better their lives. And uh, as a leader, if you can connect with people's desire to better their lives, it's, it, first off, I tell this, I have a great privilege of being able to kind of talk a lot to new CEOs. And I tell them that I know what they're going to be proud of when they leave. And so since I know what they're going to be proud of when they leave, they might as well start focusing on it now. And what all of you, the leaders, are going to be proud of are the lives that you've made a difference, the people whose lives you've made a difference to. So think about it now. 
Don't wait until you retire and look back and say, "Oh my God, this person was a hopeless, hapless idiot," and now you know he or she is running blank. Invest in them now, and if you invest in them now, they'll invest in you. But the learning from those dinners was—I mean, I learned a lot on the business, but mostly it was on the personal side and just the indomitable spirit to improve people's lives. And, and you were also writing notes to people every week. Yeah. So I had a I had a habit, and this is another one anybody can do. I really recommend it. Writing notes. So Cal mentioned I worked for George Bush when he was vice president. One of the great things about that is you know he's vice president. No one cares. You got this 20 people. You know no one really no one cares. So you can actually watch what the guy does. This is back ages ago, pre, effectively pre-computers, and he would come into the office every day and write notes for an hour, hour and a half, just little typewritten notes, and send them around. And the power of them was unbelievable. When I became the CEO of the Home Depot, every Sunday I would write 200 notes to hourly associates, thanking them for great customer service. And we had a whole process where. Stores would say, "Here's the great customer service story from our store." That would go to the district, it would go to the region. They'd all come to me, and I'd write the notes. And it was not, "Joe or Jane, you're wonderful. I love you, Frank." It would be very specific. I heard you did this. This is amazing. Thank you very much. And send out my handwritten note. And、um, I personally believe it made a difference. I've told this story a lot.、Uh, the second month or so that I'm walking in a store, somebody comes up to me. And says, you know, Frank, you wrote this letter to me. Would you mind writing me another version of it? I said, Yeah, sure, no problem. But why? And he said, Well, we were all sitting around looking at this letter, and we figured it had to be robo-penned because you couldn't possibly have written it. So we put it under water, and it leaked. Would you? <laughs> would you mind but the the lesson is, take the time to recognize and thank people and invest in people. And the people will invest in you. So I have a I have a cynical theory on this too. This doesn't relate to questions, but this is my cynical theory. So my cynical theory is do this even if you don't buy the rest of what I say, because again, recognize my background. No one knows who the hell I am, and they have very little confidence that I'm going to succeed at what I'm doing. <laughs> so I start writing these notes, and I figure how you know some of you may have collected baseball cards, right? If you collected baseball cards and you had somebody signed your baseball card, well, you have a rooting interest in this guy doing well because now you've got his signed baseball card. So you know if he's an all-star, you've got the sign. You're rooting for him. Well, I figure the same thing. You know, if you got a note from me, you're going to start rooting for me to succeed because otherwise you've got this pointless note. So I'm.、Uh, there's a cynical reason to do that too because. You want people invested in your success. Also, when you you honor people, all of you who are starting things and are building businesses and are taking time to be here, you honor people when you ask them for their advice and counsel. That is an honor you bestow on them. Do it. Do it. There are very few people who go, you know, no, screw you. I'm not going to tell you what I know. They're thrilled to tell you what they know, and they'll be invested in you because they'll say, 
Well, I hope that wasn't a complete waste of a half hour because now I want this person to succeed so that I can go and tell my friends, oh, I, you know, I help them out. And they're, you know, as they were building their business. So okay. invest in others. So now you've got people collecting your notes as if they're based on baseball cards. Yeah. How do you use questions to work with your board of directors? That's an exercise in, in control. Questions can be like a live wire in a wet basement. So you want to, you, in the board setting anyway, the way I would deal with it was I would always tell my board, here are the things that aren't working well, because as soon as I told them that, I knew that that's where all their questions would be, so I would be entirely prepared. Uh, so that was just a management of questions. I'd try to direct their questions, I, because random questions are, can be unfriendly. Okay, what happens, you, you had at the time, and you mentioned it over dinner, uh, a data breach. Yeah. In fact, one of the largest data breaches yeah. in, in that time yeah. period. How does that news come to you? And what are your questions or responses? How does that play out? Uh, so uh, sitting in my office in the morning on a Tuesday following Labor Day weekend. Uh, so the first question is, what do you say? And within three hours, we so the decision was, the question to ask, and the question that we did ask ourselves was, if you were a customer of Home Depot, what would you want to know? Would you want us to wait until we could get the definitive answer on whether we'd had a breach, or would you want to know that there's a potential issue? And we all said, nope, you'd want to know. And the second question that you'd ask as a customer is, so what? What does it mean to me? And so the next statement was, and don't worry about it because you're not liable. Whatever happens on the card, you're not liable. And so we were talking at dinner, and again, I can say this as a lawyer, hugely important not to let the lawyers run the process because <laughs> the, lawyers, the lawyers won't let you say you're sorry. The lawyers won't let you say, don't worry, we got you covered. The lawyers are looking to reduce litigation risk which is their job. They're not worried about, are you gonna have customers you know, six months from now? So, so two, very different, two very different perspectives. What happens when the lawyers come into your office after you made that decision? Yeah, yeah. What's that like? They're anxious. Uh, but I go, I got it. I, I understand, but there's, you know, it's a f order of magnitude significance. We may get litigation, we may lose the litigation, don't worry, I'm not gonna blame you, but we're gonna get through this without losing customers, which is actually what happened. So Target, which had preceded us, had a horrible customer experience. We, show, we showed no diminution in sales. In fact, our sales grew through it. And I do think part of it was because we were very transparent with our customers through the whole thing. We had one, I, this is a total side, just as an interesting story of, of true panic and fear. We've announced this, everybody knows it's happening. The next night, I have to go to New York and speak to analysts, our investors. It was a big conference in New York. We'd already signed up for it, decided to go ahead and do it. We're doing a dinner. 
with 40 different investment analysts and investors. I go into the dinner, and you know, one of the horrible things is you could track your sales by the hour. So I'm going in right before going into dinner. I look at how's our sales doing? Sales are down 35%. I mean, you know, this is like life altering. And so have to go through the dinner, smile, everything is okay, you know, don't worry, we're still, I mean, I didn't say don't worry, but, but you know, we're still working our way through it. Turned out that there was a glitch in the IT reporting and sales weren't down at all. But that was, um, that was a highly stressful, highly stressful dinner. Yeah. Now, <laughs> now as time is going by, yeah. things are going well, are you, are, do you have more time to think about questions or is the daily sight and multi times a day of looking at those sales numbers, is that taking up It takes up more headspace than it should. Uh, I do believe, and, and I said this to you before, um, and I say this not because you're up here asking me these questions. It is really worthwhile to think about how you ask questions. So, so I'll steal because, because I, didn't have, I didn't have a well-formed thought process. I just go, okay, what am I gonna ask 14 associates? How am I gonna start a conversation? It was way easier to start a conversation about their personal journey than to say, what do you think about our point of sale system? I mean, that's kind of a conversation killer. So while the other really develops really warm connected conversation. So your communication around questions is start from the heart. As I was prepping for this, I said, that is just so damn brilliant because that is exactly what you want a question to do. You want a question to show to your people or your customers or whoever it is you're talking to, you want a question that shows you care. You want us a question that shows you care. And then you can finish the rest of it, of what you do question. Yeah, start from the heart, then you go to the head, and then you follow the pathway deep into the soul. And people will, when they realize that you really care about the answer, they will open themselves up. And I've, I've often said that the best question uh, makes the person asked just as curious about the answer as you are. They may even be more curious. And once they're opened up and looking inside themselves, they'll want the next question and the next question and the next question. It's a simple process. I'm going to have to ask you at it's some point. It's a simple point. process, but what I would tell you, so I just, as you reflect, I can tell you, because I worked in a lot of large companies, as you reflect on your processes of discussion and questioning, how often are questions traps? How often are questions tests? How often are questions aggressive, almost assaults? Versus how many questions actually express, hey, I care what the hell's going on with you. Even if it's on a business topic, I care what you're doing, how you're doing it, how's it affecting you. We may not in, always get to the soul level, 
Sometimes I think we did. But boy, I'll tell you, the you know, start from the heart is uh, when, I, when I heard you talk about that, I said, God, that's just brilliant. And more people on, business, on the business side of things need to understand that because I believe that you, you know, getting a team that believes you care is one of the most uh, dynamic things you can do as a leader. Last question. Do your questions change on the day you retire, actually the first day that you're not working? Absolutely no. So interestingly, as you pulled out of me in our questions, which I hadn't really thought about, which is why you ask good questions, question, questions were not a particularly positive thing for me up until I realized I'd better ask a lot of questions. And I ought to think about how I do that and how I do that effectively. Once you get into that pattern, it's the only way to ask questions. I mean, once you understand that, uh, you know, a question's like a little dart into someone. One other great lesson that I learned that was so fascinating. At Home Depot, we're in the middle of the housing crisis. And there is an analyst in a big mutual fund that talks her mutual fund into buying, at that time, almost 20% of Home Depot. So a multi, multi-billion dollar bet on Home Depot, which turned out, I mean, you know, she built many houses based on that. It was a brilliant, it was a brilliant move. At a dinner with her, talking about questions, and so why I don't lose this in retirement doesn't impact it. What's the question? Now I'm the CEO of a hardware company. What's the question she asks? What, just tell me a significant moment in your childhood. I gotta tell you, through eight years, I never got asked that question again. And I thought, this is really interesting. This is a different way of, she's making a different judgment on me. God, I don't know what the right answer of that is, but a very different judgment. And, and I'll give one other story just on perception and how smart that question was and unexpected. A couple of years later, we're sitting down, she now owns almost 20% of Home Depot, and she's saying, oh, I see your supply chain thing is going well. And we've been struggling with changing our supply chain. And I said, yeah, yeah, no, it is. I said, but why do you say that? And she said, well, the guy who runs supply chain, the guy's name was Mark, and she said, Mark cut his hair. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, he was hiding his face behind his hair. And he cut his hair, so I assume things are going well. And I go, that was exactly right. He cut it. I wish I had seen that. And I told him afterwards, I said, you are going to the barber forever now because we can't stand it if our investors are saying, uh-oh, you know, he's shaggy-haired again. This thing's not going well. But it's... it's Look at this guy. Right, right. But it's just uh, the power of questions, the power of those personal questions and the insights you get from them don't stop. In fact, they grow over time. Well, 
thank you so much because you've made me see questions in a completely new way. I, I, I never saw a question for the last 61 years. I never saw questions through that prism. And it's, it's probably going to change me in a lot of ways. I will, I will walk away from this different man. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you all. That about wraps it up. Thanks to all of you for sending along photos of where you listen to big questions. And down the road, there's going to be some innovative changes to big questions with the addition of new sponsors. I've been thinking about this for a while now. I want to make these sponsored segments very different. And what we're conjuring up may give you a chance to win a free trip to New Zealand. So keep listening and have your suitcase ready. Cheers!